here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who's in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content's added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. there and welcome to our show, The Shit No One Tells You About Writing. I'm Bianca Murray and I'm joined by Carly Waters and Cece Lira from PS Literary Agency. We'll be kicking off today's episode with our usual Books with Hooks segment, after which we'll go to today's guest. Before we begin today's episode, we just want to let you know about a new feature that we have coming up on our bonus episodes where we will have a Q&A where we answer your questions. Now, how we're going to run this is you can leave us a voicemail with your question or perhaps you just want to share publishing good news or you have some insight that you'd like to share with us. We will then answer those questions and incorporate them into the Monday bonus episodes. Now, you can find the link to that on my website, biancamaray.com. Go to the podcast page and scroll down. You'll find the link there where it says... You can ask us a question for the podcast and we will answer it. So follow that link. It is a voicemail. You can 
Give your name or you can leave it anonymously. And if it gets picked, listen out for it on the Monday bonuses. Hi, everyone. Welcome to another Books with Hook segment. Today, Carly and Cece will each be tackling two queries. So let's plunge right in. Carly, will you get us started? Dear Ms. Waters, a friend recently recommended The Shit No One Tells You About Writing, and I have since spent my long holiday drives home to New Jersey binging the great advice you have all shared. I noticed on your manuscript wish list that we love many of the same authors, and while I write more for a young adult audience, I would appreciate your feedback on my novel of that genre, Redacted, complete at 70,000 words. The world's a stage for 15-year-old Betta Meyer in Redacted, a high-drama coming-of-age novel that's a collision of the Broadway musical A Chorus Line and Julie Murphy's Dumplin', using sarcasm and a stage to showcase the story. Similar to Dear Evan Hansen by Emic, Levin, Pasek, and Paul, in its portrayal of adolescent anxiety from the perspective of the Starkey protagonist, Redacted explores what happens when you see people for who they are without the mask they wear. 15-year-old Bettemeyer is desperate to move on from the pain of her father's death from her small town and childhood friendships that have grown awkward since puberty, and from her days spent at a snooty Catholic school where she is known only for her unfortunate chosen underwear. She decides to take a chance at something new and auditions for a musical in the dreamy yet conservative town of Awe Beach. This new world of community theater could be exactly the escape she needs, but first she has to make the cut. After surviving singing tryouts and dance callbacks, Betta's dream comes true. She is cast in the teen production of A Chorus Line. Throughout the weeks of rehearsal, Betta makes new friends, discovers a passion for performing, and begins to gain some much-needed confidence in herself. But her dream world fades and reality takes its place when Betta runs into very real dramas, including boozy parties, core-shaking anxiety, aggressive boys who won't take no for an answer, enemies who desperately need help, and a town-wide rally to boycott the controversial show that has quickly become everything to her. Betta's story parallels the themes of a chorus line as we learn about the lives behind those who are playing parts on stage and in real life. Throughout it all, the daily trials of teen life require strength and bravery, difficult traits for a girl weighed down by fear and self-doubt. Betta must have the courage to find her true crew, confront her villains, and decide who exactly she wants to become in the process. I am a freelance writer, marketing professional, diehard musical theater fan, and former child of community theater. My short story, Pirate Flapjacks and the Fancy Pants, was a winner in the Children's YA category of the annual Writer's Digest writing competition. I have included the first five pages of Redacted below. Thank you so much for your time and consideration. Lisa Duramanato. Okay, here is my take on the query letter. The author also sent in some questions for me, so I think I'll address that probably when I critique the pages. So for now, I will just start at the top. So I think with the comps, I don't think you need to say who created Dear Evan Hansen. I feel like that's a brand in itself. It's like a whole phenomenon. So I don't think you need to name the creators in that one. I love Dumplin'. Dumplin' was like such a great book. I also love the movie. If you haven't seen the movie yet, so, so, so good. So I think those are some good comps. I thought overall the middle paragraph was pretty strong, but I would cut the paragraph that says Betta Story parallels the themes. Like I think we're just doubling down too hard on the chorus line stuff. And I don't think that part's necessary. In the author bio, you have your short story, Pirate Flap jacks and the fancy pants i would take the title of that out it sounds pretty young and you're trying to write this greedy ya so i felt like we were off brand a little bit so i would just say you know my short story was a winner maybe just name the year or something like that but i don't think you need to actually name the title because going back to some of the questions this author sent in one of their questions was about kind of whether it feels controversial enough and things like that and so i think if you're trying to be a controversial ya author i think that you kind of again really want to stick on brand so i would just try to focus on that 
that as much as possible. I think those are all of my my main notes. I mean, I think it's pretty strong. And as I said, their question was kind of about whether this was controversial. And it's hard for me to answer whether it's controversial without getting into the pages. So I'll just I'll tackle those other questions when we get to the pages. Wonderful, Carly. Thanks. Cece, did you have anything you wanted to add? Just that I find it so interesting that Dear Evan Hansen was a musical before it became a book. I think that's a really cool case study. I didn't know that. So that's interesting. Okay, Carly, will you let us know what was in those opening pages? Yes. So we start off with our main character at the front doors of a large building. They are about to go inside this large building, knowing, you know, based on what's happened with the query letter, we get the sense that they are going to audition for a play. And then we go right into backstory. We're learning about the first time that this character has been to this playhouse. They had just recently saw Peter Pan. So we're talking about Peter Pan. And then we learn a little bit more about the theater and the fact that she's going to audition for this role. And then we get a bunch of backstory about all the things that this character isn't good at. So it says like, I've tried sports. It goes through the sports. And then it says, you know, I tried this and I wasn't good at this. I tried gymnastics. So we, we kind of learn a little bit about the backstory and that's it. And then we're at the end of our sample. Wonderful. What was your take on it? So one of the questions this author had for us was this. I think it's important to know why the main character is doing what she's doing now and why she has issues. Originally, when I submitted it, it had begun with the backstory, but it seems more like a prologue now, which is a no-no. My update has the opening scene interspersed with backstory instead, but is it too much? And my answer to that is yes, (laughs) it's way, way, way too much. I really wanted to get to the inciting incident faster. The fact that we are shown a character whose feet are just like rooted, you know, they can't move. You know, she's saying like, I'm frozen. I can't go through these doors. We are frozen with you, right? And we need movement. We need purpose. You know, we really just got to move through those doors. Like the entire, I just felt like these entire pages, we were standing on this doorstep with this person because not only do we not move through the doors, we also go back into the past, right? And I just, I'm not really getting a sense of movement. You know, we're working towards anything at this stage. Stage because with YA, you know, we, we really have to get to that inciting incident faster, right? Because the entire book is kind of based on what happens after that. And so we don't really have as much time to dilly-dally at the beginning. I think with YA, I think we need to get to that inciting incident really fast. There's a couple of kind of word choice things. One of them says, one look at me in my sweaty, treacherous hands would have given away my fear. I think traitorous would have been a, a better word choice there. Treacherous can mean a couple different things. So I would say I would go with traitorous. And then at the end of the first page, we have the protagonist talking to the reader says, do you have a book that your parents would read to you in bed to help you fall asleep when you were little? I thought that was a little bit odd if we weren't going to continue that dialogue with the reader. And I I just didn't get the sense that I was going to continue. So that felt a little out of place for me. The stuff that I thought was really good was the character talking about the reason that they saw that play, Peter Pan, you know, this character's dad had died. And, you know, just the fact that you could watch this play and just kind of get out of the moment of missing her dad so much. I thought that was really, really strong. And then we just get into a lot of telling. And so, you know, I I think we would just chop it off at I've tried sports that I think on my page, it's four, I believe. So from there on, just chop all that out. We just don't need that, right? Because it's not moving us forward. It is telling us something about the character, but not in the context of what we want to know, which is if this book is supposed to be about plays and playwrights and that sort of thing, we're just getting so far off topic here. So I would cut all of that. And the other thing they had a question about was, originally they said they had set the story in 99 and now they've moved it up to the present, but she's saying it doesn't feel controversial enough. So like my level for controversial for teens right now is euphoria. Like 
that is extremely controversial. So unless you're at euphoria levels, like I can't even watch it. That's how cringy that show is for me. I watched three episodes and I was like, I'm going to have a panic attack. So so that's the level of controversial for me. So if we can't get to euphoria levels, like, is this controversial? You know, I, I to a certain extent, maybe, but it's hard. I didn't find what I was reading controversial. Great, Carly. Thank you. Cece, was there anything you wanted to add there? Just that I also cannot watch Euphoria. I feel you. Well, just for our listeners, what Carly said there about why a things needing to happen faster. I always use this example when I teach. Think about the Hunger Games. So most stories you need in the first act, your inciting incident, which tips over that first domino and gets everything going. And then at the end of act one, you have the key event. This is the point of no return for the character. They cannot just go, meh, no, not up for this today I'm going back to bed and that normally happens like in the first 25% of the novel with the Hunger Games the inciting incident was in chapter one and the key event was in chapter two so that entire first act was just two chapters that's how fast moving that was so definitely with YA you need to get things happening much much quicker which then makes your act two so much more challenging because the act two now instead of comprising 50% of the novel can comprise like 60 to 75% of the novel right okay so Cece will you read us your first query letter let's do this dear Bianca Carly and Cece I'm a recent but big fan of the podcast, and I've learned far more from you in the last months than I have trudging along the front lines of the querying trenches on my own. Here's a letter I've written a hundred times to seduce an agent. Libertine is an adult contemporary debut novel of 72,000 words. It will appeal to fans of John Fante's self-deprecating voice in his classic Ask the Dust, along with those interested in the taboo subject matter of Rachel Kranz's Open. There's nothing quite like heartbreak to make a regular guy find a way to become a rock star, and no better place to start than a sex club. Mark has never lived up to anyone's expectations especially his own. He suffers from panic disorder, works in a cubicle, drives a Prius, and obsesses over his lost love, Jasmine. She was a wild woman who left him on the sidewalk of the Sunset Strip 15 years ago because he wasn't worldly enough for her. When he gets laid off from his office job, he decides it's past time to take some risks. He flies to France and discovers the decadent thrill of getting naked with strangers at a swinger party. Emboldened by his experiences, he goes home to Southern California and dives headfirst into the cult-like community known as the Lifestyle. His hookups temporarily free him from social anxiety and his body insecurity, but he struggles to keep his double life secret from family and friends. Casual encounters are his form of self-medication. The late nights and black lights are band-aids for unresolved issues. He falls hard for Simone, whose devil-may-care attitude reminds him of Jasmine, and hopes Simone will love him in a way that Jasmine never did. This is a do-over, a chance to reclaim the unrequited passion of his youth in midlife. However, Mark's relationship skills aren't nearly as honed as his newfound prowess in the bedroom. His on-again-off-again connection with Simone unleashes a tidal wave of mutual jealousy and betrayal. Now, fighting full-blown sex addiction, he needs to stop trying so hard to be something he's not, and instead, find strength and acceptance within. I'm a screenwriter and filmmaker. I've done journalism for Redacted and had a short story published in a Redacted anthology. Libertine is fiction based loosely on my personal experiences. Thank you, Redacted. 
Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. So what was your take on that query letter? All right. So three cheers for writers who take the time to perfect their query letter because I know it's stuff. So I feel you that you've written this a hundred times and I admire that. I also really love the reference to Open by Rachel Krantz. I know Carly's a fan and it's on my to-be-read list. So in terms of the plot paragraph, right? Because that's the part that I always obsess over. As of the line, keep his double life secret from family and friends. Everything after that, till the very end of the paragraph, it ends with acceptance within. It's all interiority. All about his search for belonging, the struggles of man versus self and man versus society and man versus nature. And don't get me wrong, those feelings, those feelings that are unleashed in new relationships, that interiority is essential part of a good character and a good story, but it's not sufficiently compelling for a query letter. So I recommend you cut this part and instead you weave in curiosity inducing plot points. So for example, he says he must, you know, keep his double life a secret from friends and family. Okay, what's at stake? if he's not able to keep the secret? Is there a new job that he might lose? Because it, I understand that it's embarrassing and that there's, there's stigmas attached to in our society, but it's not quite enough to make me fear for him. Unless, again, there's a specific relationship that, you know, he will lose. It could be that too, but then I need more specificity in terms of the plot. When I read query letters that don't have enough plot and instead focus on interiority, I can't help but wonder if it's because the book doesn't have enough plot. And sometimes that's the case, but usually it's because it's just not woven into the query letter itself. So I'm confident that the writer can do it. And, you know, he's a screenwriter and a filmmaker, or, or they are a screenwriter and a filmmaker. So they will probably understand my note. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. I'm wondering if Alice Hilton's Maestra Domina Ultima series might also be a good comparison here. I know that was more a woman who was murdering the men she was having a lot of sex with, but just give it a read and see if it might be a good comp. Okay, Cece, can you tell us what was in those opening pages? So our protagonist arrives at a party at a women's college and meets Jasmine, and he falls hard for her. We see his first time with her, first time is in the first time he has sex, where he seems to have like the beginnings of an anxiety attack, but she soothes him and makes him feel reassured. We see them going to a concert together, and you know, she asks him what does he want to do after graduation, and he answers lawyer because he feels like that is the right answer. But through his inner life, we learn that he's actually always dreamed of being a rock star. That's what happens. Wonderful. Thanks, Cece. Okay, what was your take on the opening pages? So, there are things that are working and things that I think could be tweaked. And I'll just, you know, go over a few examples and I'll give you my my overall conclusion. So, for example, right on the first page, there's a line that says, you don't have to be the best looking or the most cocky guy in the room when you're the only guy in the room. But he had just said that he goes to these parties with his friends from university. So, I had understood that his friends were there. So I think clarify that because that was a little confusing to me. I really loved the detail that when Jasmine spoke, her voice didn't go up an octave at the end of every sentence. That was a very sharp and specific and interesting detail. There's a part where he mentions her tongue tasted like Beaujolais and her neck smelled of Chanel. That did not sound like something that an inexperienced teenager would think of to me. I don't know if that's intentional or not, but that was like, that's so, so just not what a teen would think. So I don't know, either explain how he knows these things, I think, or maybe choose different references. 
And there's a part where he's discussing his inner life, where he says, You're such a loser, I told myself. You've waited so long for this, and you can't even get it up when it happens. She's beautiful. She's everything you've ever wanted. Like, what's wrong with you? And I don't think you need to spell out those thoughts, only because you did a really good job of building up the emotionality and the inner life and the anxiety to that moment. So I knew that's what he was thinking anyway. And you told me like he was filled with negative thoughts. So I think, you know, take Brit Bennett's great advice. And remember, the reader is intelligent, right? For a reader that is more intelligent than you are. Also, there's a line where it reads, at 15, I had grown eight inches in a year. And I know that he's referring to back when he was 15, but I had to read it twice because I was like, wait, is he telling me he's 15? Because that would just change the whole story. And I know that's not what it is, but it just gave me pause. So I really, really liked the law school detail. The fact that, you know, he just answered that because he wanted to be on the same level as his medical degree sister. That that just was a really great example. The part that really gave me pause and that is tied to like my big picture note. He does tell us actually what I really want is to be a rock star. But that's all he says in terms of like the specificity of what he actually wants to do on stage. He does mention that the reason why he wants this is so people will look at him with their full undivided attention and with adoration. And I totally get that. But he does mention he has zero musical ability. Those are the exact words. And I'm thinking to myself, wait, hold on. This person dreams of being a rock star, but he doesn't sing or play an instrument. And so that's a little odd. So I would either like own that and say that like that it's a delusion that it's, you know, you've never actually learned how to play an instrument because that would make not being a rock star even more heartbreaking because you you might find out that you don't have talent or something. Or I would change that detail, right? Because again, I don't know if it's a goal or a dream. Right now it's just a dream and I understand the difference, but you need to address that. Otherwise it's just too vague, which like I said, is tied to my big picture note. So First of all, there's very little tension on these pages. I recommend choosing a starting point with more tension, with more power and balance, curiosity-inducing obstacles. It's very polished on a line level, so I absolutely appreciate that. But the way his dream is currently being portrayed, and this dream is essential to the story, we know this because of the query letter, it's reading as sweet, and that's it. I don't feel urgency, and I suspect it's because urgency in the context of having a dream is conveyed through specificity and context. So let's face it, being a rock star is as vague as it gets when it comes to dreams. And wanting to be loved is not noteworthy context. So I would prefer it if he had a specific passion for, I don't know, drums, right? Or if it's lead singer he dreams of being, then I want a line or two about how that would accomplish something that's tied to his emotional makeup, you know? Like, for example, and these are very silly examples, don't actually use these, but if he is able to woo a crowd, then his dad will come back because his dad left, or his mom will finally love him, or... I don't know, he'll make his grandparents proud. Usually when you have a dream and you're not actually working on the skill related to that dream, it's because you want the fame and the adoration that comes with it. So I just wanted a little bit more fleshing out of that because I thought that that would make it more interesting. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. All right, Carly, why don't you read us the next query letter? All right. Content warning. This query mentions sexual assault, violence, and murder. Dear Bianca, Carly, and Cece, I am seeking representation for my memoir. 
One Summer Never Ends, How I Helped Solve a 37-Year-Old Cold Case. It is currently 77,000 words. It would appeal to readers who loved We Keep the Dead Close, I'll Be Gone in the Dark, and Wild. The shit no one tells you about writing has been a ray of hope to me this past year. I thought Carly would be interested because on her wish list, she wanted unique memoirs. Cece might be interested for she loves books that expose what is in plain sight and how people, things, and patterns can change when it is exposed. I tell the story how nine years ago, a man asked me for a pen when I was visiting my grandparents' grave. Being nosy, I looked at the grave he was visiting. It was Suzanne Susie Bombardier, a young woman who was watching her nieces one night when she was kidnapped, raped, and murdered in June 1980, a month before my grandmother died of lung cancer. Her story did not have a digital fingerprint, meaning there wasn't much about her online. Frustrated that her case had been unsolved, I started researching her story. Meeting one of her best friends and detectives who worked on the original case, I wrote about Susie for Salon and for the website Defrosting Cold Cases. This essay led to her case being reopened. Thanks to a DNA match, Mitchell Lynn Backham was arrested for Susie's murder. His trial is scheduled for March 2022. It also changed my life. When I first learned her story, I was stuck at a boring job, feeling frustrated and sad. Learning about Susie inspired me to take chances, including applying to a writing retreat and applying to grad school. Trying to solve her murder also gave me solace during a dark time when I had to leave the Bay Area due to financial reasons. I have a MFA in writing and publishing for Vermont College of Fine Arts. I graduated from Mills College, where I won first place for the annual Young Adult Fiction Contest. I've had several essays broadcast on KQED, one where I wrote about Susie. I've published in Diverse Media, Salon, Hunger Mountain, The New Southern Fugitives, Literary Kitchen, and The Manifestation. I've also published three ebooks. I Woke Up in Love This Morning, which was in the Amazon Top 25 Sellers Children's Stories, Take What You've Got and Fly With It, which was number one for several days on Amazon's essay collection bestsellers, and Ella Bella. My essay about Susie has reprinted in Chicken Soup for the Soul, The Empowered Woman, at this time, I'm also working on a historical novel about Una O'Neill Chaplin. Currently, I live in Central California with too many books and two cats. I keep my deadlines and I'm willing to work hard. Thank you for your time. I hope to hear from you soon. Yours truly, Jennifer. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on that? So it's just starting at the top. They call this a memoir, and obviously it is entirely crime related. So I'm wondering like why, and also some of the comps are true crime. So I'm wondering why this isn't true crime or, you know, just framing it as like narrative nonfiction, true crime. I'm just curious about why they chose memoir, I guess. I also don't know why wild is a comp. Everybody uses it and <laughs> I don't understand what the journey of this pitch has to do with the journey of wild necessarily. I mean, unless it's kind of the mother angle, but other than that, I'm not really seeing it. And so I think there would be so many other options for comps. So I just don't see wild being necessary there. So there's a few things I would just strike through and cut from this. The author explains what didn't have a digital fingerprint means. So cut that line, like meaning there wasn't much better online, cut that and cut that bit about trying to solve her murder also gave me solace during a dark time. You know, we don't need that. And I've also made some notes in the author bio, which I think we should cut, which is just simplifying some of the language, cutting out the names of the ebooks because we're just not on brand, right? We're getting off brand here. Obviously, all of that stuff can be on your author website. We'll click to it. We'll see it there. But really just try to stay on brand here. I would also cut, I keep my deadlines and I'm willing to work hard because I assume that you would and I give everybody the benefit of the doubt. So I just don't think that needs to be said. But talking about the actual concept here, this is fascinating, right? Absolutely fascinating. Like how many people 
people can say that they helped contribute to a cold case being opened up, somebody being arrested and there's a trial. Like that's absolutely bonkers. This is very, very intriguing. And just from a pure marketability standpoint, I would request the pages because this is really interesting. But I think it still seems a little rough around the edges in terms of the pitch. Wonderful, Carly. Thank you. Will you give us an indication of what was in those opening pages? Yeah, so it's called Holy Saturday 2013 and the Girl with Farrah Fawcett Hair. So that's our, our chapter title. So we are in the cemetery. Our protagonist has taken us there, telling us about the town, where it is in Lafayette, California. She took an Uber there or some sort of driver and she's walking down the rows and finding the grave that she's looking for. She's looking for her grandma. And she's telling her all about everything going on in her life, just like ha- having an open dialogue at the grave. And then she has a man come up to her and ask for a pen. And then we're kind of just recounting exactly what happened in the query letter. So a man asks for a pen. She goes over to the grave, kind of trying to figure out some more information about that person that they were observing. And then we flash forward. It says six months later, our protagonist is working odd hours at the day job. She is a kind of a person who just watches people take their test, basically a proctor. And so she just kind of explains a little bit about her job. And then we're done. Okay, thank you. Before you... Give us your critique of those opening pages. A question I have in terms of marketability, what would be easier to sell? True crime or memoir? Or is it not that simple? So that's a good question. I think true crime because it's still one of those things that everybody gravitates towards and not, I shouldn't say everybody can write a memoir. Everybody thinks they can write a memoir. <laughs> not everybody can write a true crime. Not everybody has a story to be like, hey, this is literal true crime, right? And there's still such a satisfaction around just, you know, especially having a potential closed circle moment where we might be solving this. Super, super fascinating. So I would say true crime is more marketable or calling it narrative nonfiction where you give it an arc, like a narrative nonfiction true crime. Memoir, I think, doesn't do this topic justice. Like, I just don't think it has that pinpoint the way that true crime does just because true crime tends to trump everything else you know so to make a true crime the author would have to remove themselves very much from the story or can they still be a part of the story and have it be true crime so the way that I would want it to be written would be that they would be very involved in the story. So it's not really so much as like this person has to do anything to change this pitch or anything. It's just I think they need to call it true crime or narrative nonfiction because I think having this personal touch and these personal stories is wonderful and contributes a lot to this story. So they don't really have to do anything different. I think having a true crime where the author is embedded in it is, is great. Right. Cece, will you read us the last query letter? Hello, Bianca, Carly, and Cece. A writer colleague recommended your podcast, and now I am a complete addict and listen to the shit no one tells you about writing regularly. I particularly enjoy the Books with Hook segment and have learned a huge amount from the insightful comments you share. I would love your feedback on my 80,000-word psychological thriller debut, Redacted. When Annie's wealthy, famous mother unexpectedly dies, her penniless entrepreneur boyfriend Jeff falls under suspicion. He must prove his innocence or be charged with her murder. Think Gone Girl in an affluent celebrity London told from the dual POV of Jeff and the deceased's daughter, Annie. The novel switches between the present investigation and the past, looking at Jeff and Annie's relationship and life when Annie's mother was alive. 
In terms of the subject matter, Redacted is for fans of The Girl on the Train by Paula Hawkins and Daphne du Maurier, Rebecca. It could also be compared with the TV series The Undoing, starring Nicole Kidman and Hugh Grant, based on the novel You Should Have Known by Jean Humph Korrelitz. When wealthy English actress Maria Fitzsimmons unexpectedly dies, both her daughter and Annie's partner, penniless entrepreneur Jeff Dugan, are grief-stricken. But the British police suspect foul play and soon investigate Jeff. The young American stands to lose his marriage, his business, and his liberty. Jeff and loyal Annie insist that he is no murderer. However, Jeff has shocking secrets which he is desperate to keep hidden. In a bid to clear his name before he is arrested, Jeff desperately tries to discover who killed Maria. In the process, he uncovers a family with dark secrets. Maria had a complicated life surrounded by jealousy, greed, and lies. It's a world which leaves even cynical Jeff reeling as he learns the appalling truth Jeff realizes saving his career and a relationship by proving his innocence will test his integrity to the utmost and involve a compromise far bigger than he ever thought possible. I work as a freelance journalist and contribute to British national newspapers, including the Daily Telegraph. I have also written regularly for the New York Times. I recently completed the selective Faber course, Write Your Novel Online and have had a screenplay long listed by the BBC. I have two grown-up sons and live in London with my husband, an ancient cat, and an excitable young puppy, which is colorful, huge fun, and a wonderful antidote to the hard work of writing fiction. My five pages are enclosed herewith, and I look forward to hearing from you. Sincerely, Redacted. Thanks, Cece. Just a note on redundancy in terms of writing and in terms of query letters. Young puppy is considered redundant because a puppy by its very nature means it's young. Okay, so these are things we need to look out for in our query letters and in our writing as well. Okay, Cece, what was your take on that? My take is that I call Baba Ganoush a puppy, even though he is almost 11. So, actually, almost 10. You can't do wrong with so us when depends, you're talking about yeah. dogs. <laughs> <laughs> it depends. <laughs> okay, no, but actually the redundancy note is, is my biggest note here. Because I got so much repetition. Like, I don't know. I think I suspect that the author was like, oh, I'm supposed to put the hook in the first paragraph and then also have a plot paragraph. So I'm just going to repeat the hook. But that's not what we mean. What we mean is like use different words and don't repeat things that we already know. Because you mentioned that the, you know, the, the famous mother dies twice. And you mentioned that the British police go after the boyfriend twice. And this is really precious real estate. I don't recommend at all the repetition. So I would just revise this, overhaul it, eliminate every single time that you're repeating something. And the puppy thing I actually think is fine to keep. I'm just going to disagree with Bianca on that. My second note, in addition to redundancies, is there's a lot of vague sentences here. So for example, you're telling me that it's dual POV and dual timeline. Okay, super interesting. And then, you know, you mentioned that the past is looking into Jeff and Annie's relationship and when Annie's mother was alive. I don't need to know that. That's completely unnecessary. You either tell me something that's super interesting that you're going to find out in the past, right? Or like first crime that Jeff committed. So I know he did commit a crime. And then I'm wondering like, oh, I wonder if there's the, he also committed this one or remove that clause altogether. The paragraph that starts with when wealthy English actress Maria, and that goes all the way till the paragraph that ends with far bigger than he ever thought possible. If you look at my line notes, you're probably going to think I'm so mean and I'm sorry, but I just kept writing, this is super vague. This is super vague. This is super vague. Like I, 
all the sentences are just, Jeff has shocking secrets, which he is desperate to keep hidden. I have no idea what that's alluding to. And I need to have some sense of specificity because shocking secrets is not going to get me to want to read something. It is too generic. I love that Jeff tries to discover who killed Maria. That is a very good plot point because it tells me the journey that he's going on. But like uncovers a family with dark secrets. That doesn't tell me anything. Maria had a complicated life surrounded by emotions, jealousy, greed, and lies. That doesn't tell me anything. That leaves cynical Jeff reeling. That doesn't tell me anything. His integrity will be tested. Like I say this with all the love for, you know, the people who, whose integrity are being tested. That's not interesting. It's interesting in terms of the interiority. It is an essential part of storytelling, interiority. But I want the plot here. So you actually have, this is the part that's kind of is doing your story a disservice. You have a great inciting incident. Mother dies, boyfriend gets accused of murder. That is so exciting. You know, boyfriend must go on an investigation to clear his name, to avoid going to jail, but probably also because the daughter wants to know who killed her mom. Super interesting. Like, I would love to read that book. But you're not developing the plot in the way that you should. You're not giving me specifics. Condense this, compress this. Yeah, just generally write a query letter that I think is deserving of this really great hook because it is a very great hook. Thanks, Cece. Carly, was there anything you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I just wanted to talk about one formatting thing. So this is much more common in the UK. I worked in publishing in the UK for a while. And so this italicizing parts of the query, because it happens a lot with like cover copy and things like that. But in terms of a query, I would probably try not to italicize the hook and then the middle section. Sometimes emailing stuff gets wonky, you can't control formatting. So I would just try to keep your text as plain as possible. As I said, I think it's just more of a UK thing. But if you can't, I would just say flip that over to regular font. Great. Thanks, Carly. Okay, Cece, what was in those opening pages? We get chapter one and we get a little bit of chapter two. Chapter one is told from Sheila's point of view. Who is Sheila? We don't know yet. She is arriving at Maria's house and we know that Maria is a famous actress. Sheila's horoscope promised her a bad day and so far it's delivered. She nearly slipped, it's raining, and apparently she doesn't have an umbrella. Sheila is super spooked, right? Like as she makes her way inside the house, she thinks she sees a shadow and then she hears the gate closing, but then she turns around and it's like, no, nothing happened. It's just the branch being caught in the wind. Like I'm imagining things, she tells herself. And like inside the house, she's also a little spooked, right? And she keeps telling herself, just get over it. It's just a horoscope. She hears the bath water running and, you know, that means Maria's drawing a bath, but then the water keeps on running. So she goes to check on Maria, again, feeling super spooked, and then she finds a dead body. Chapter two starts with Jeff. So in Jeff's head, he's sipping coffee. He has normal chit chat with his girlfriend, Annie. And then Annie asks him, like, what are, you, what are you thinking about? He lies and he says work stuff. That's all we know, that it's a lie. We don't know what he was actually thinking about. Two people stop by the house and tell Annie that Maria is dead. They don't use the word murdered, but we know because of the query letter. And yeah, and that's, that's what happens. Wonderful, Cece. Thank you. Okay, what was your take on them? So again, I think you have a really, really, really cool hook. So if you're listening, writer, you know, please know that I love your hook. I remember reading it for the first time being like, oh, nice. I would so read a novel. But I don't think that you're, with the execution, kind of like with the query letter, doing it justice. So I'll talk about what's working and, and what, in my opinion, is not working. And so first of all, 
Why are we starting the story with Sheila? Because up until Jeff's chapter, I didn't know that Sheila was the cleaning lady. I had thought that maybe she was, but I didn't know for sure. And that's okay. I didn't. I don't need to know who she is. But Sheila is probably not a POV character, right? We were told that this would be told in Annie's and Jeff's POV. So if we're gonna get Sheila discovering the dead body, maybe make it a prologue because at least it's not chapter one. Because otherwise it's like, why am I starting with a point of view that I'm not going to get invested in? Also think you should add a timestamp because you're telling me that this is an investigation. So time matters. And you're also telling me that it's dual POV and dual timeline. So timestamps are your best friend, you know, have a BFF moment with those timestamps because I think that they're really important. My big note in terms of the Sheila chapter, in addition to like wondering whether her point of view is the one we should be getting at the start, is Sheila being spooked isn't working. So I imagine that she was about to discover Maria's dead body. I imagine that because of the query letter. And honestly, it's not the best thing to have her already be spooked. It would be so much better to have her thinking about something else, you know, maybe a conversation she has to have with Maria, a difficult conversation, you know, confronting Maria about some habit of hers, I don't know, something. And then she finds the dead body because otherwise we won't feel as shocked or as afraid because we're already kind of getting those very on the nose clues that, you know, something spooky is going to happen. So yeah, I just, that's my personal note. I totally get that it's probably a, a taste thing. In terms of chapter two, so Jeff, we are being kept at arm's length when it comes to his interiority, which is a problem because we're in his head. I understand that the writer doesn't want to give away the goods, and that's obviously the right move, but you have to give us something, right? He's talking to his girlfriend. I have no idea how he feels about her. None. I know facts. I know she cooks and he does not. I know he drinks fine wine and she cooks and he smokes weed and she cooks. Like everything about Annie is Annie cooks. And I get that. that those are facts. But how does he feel about her? I have absolutely no idea. And I think I should. When he lies that, you know, he's thinking about work and he's not, I think a clue would be good. I also don't think you have to like, you're adding too much context. So for example, where are you? Asked his girlfriend, Annie. Like Annie asked or asked Annie, we're going to figure out who Annie is. Reader super intelligent. We're going to be moving the pieces of the puzzle in our mind. And we're going to be doing the work of figuring out who Annie is. Same with he lies and he says work stuff. And then she asks like good work stuff. And he says, "Uh uh-huh. And then in his head, we get home from home. His luxury short stay rental business was his passion and rebuilding it after the meltdown caused by the pandemic was his priority. But right now he could barely feign interest. Like it's too much explanation, the name of the company, what the company does. And so it's, this is a thriller, right? Like we're supposed to be at the edge of our seats and super nervous. And there's just not enough emotionality. I'm wondering whether when the police show up, I'm not curious at all. And I feel mean saying this, but I should be. A woman just died. I know she was murdered. I have to wonder who murdered her. And I think the reason why I'm not curious is because A, there's not enough mystery woven in. Mystery requires specificity. I have to be forming theories. A mystery is by definition something that makes the person speculate. I'm not speculating. And two, I just need more emotions about Jeff and more more clues. Yeah. I I think, you know, if you're going to keep Sheila's point of view, one thing I'll say is cleaning people, they have access to people's lives. The stuff that everyone keeps hidden, everyone doesn't want to show. So I would lean into that maybe. Use that to your advantage. Yeah, those are my notes. All right, that's it for today's Books with Hooks. Let's go to today's guest. 
we just registered my youngest kid for kindergarten. I cannot believe it. One of the tricky things about my kids being in French immersion school and not having French as a language myself is I'm honestly worried about how I'm going to assist with homework as they get bigger. They're young now, but I see it coming. We are honestly so lucky, though, to live in a city that's bilingual and we have bilingual friends and francophone friends. So I know it's going to be easy for our kids to pick it up. Me, on the other hand, I am worried about me. I grew up somewhere where French class was not taken seriously, and now I have to make up the difference. And that's where Rosetta Stone comes in. As the most trusted language learning program available on desktop or as an app, it really immerses you in the language you want to learn. Rosetta Stone teaches through immersion, which is a proven way to learn a language. Instead of memorizing and drilling vocabulary words, you learn by matching audio from native speakers to visuals, reading stories, participating in dialogues, and other practical language skills to fast track your ability to communicate fluently. There are no English translations in the product. You're honestly getting trained to listen, speak, read, write, and think in your new language, which is what everybody wants. Rosetta Stone users especially love the speech recognition feature. As you practice speaking, Rosetta Stone uses advanced voice recognition technology to match your audio, the audio from native speakers, and then give you feedback on how well you're pronunciating the words so you can really hone those pronunciations. It offers 25 languages from Spanish, French, Italian, German, Chinese, Korean, Japanese, even Dutch, Arabic, and Polish. This is the best language program because they have been an expert in the language learning field for 30 years and used by millions. Thousands of companies and government organizations use Rosetta Stone to support language training online. Of all the apps, Rosetta Stone uses the best speech recognition technology, so it compares your sound waves to those of a native speaker for better feedback to improve. They have a patented speech recognition engine called True Accent, which is built into the program. As you practice speaking, you'll get feedback on how well you're pronouncing words. The other language learning apps use speech recognition to detect what you said, but Rosetta Stone tells you how well you said it compared to native speakers. It's like having a personal trainer for your accent. Think about the cost of a one-month language course. Think about the cost of one-hour private tutoring sessions. With Rosetta Stone, you enjoy lifetime membership and accessibility on desktop or app. We have a special offer for you guys. That's 50% off. That's a lifetime access to 25 language courses on Rosetta Stone for 50% off. This is a steal. Do not put off learning that language. There is no better time than right now to get started. For a very limited time, the shit no one tells you about writing listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off. That We want you guys to go visit rosettastone.com slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com slash today, today. Are you looking for beta readers, some of whom might potentially become writing group members down the line? Are you wanting to be matched up with those writing in a similar genre or time zone so they can critique your work as you critique theirs at the same time? Your manuscript doesn't have to be complete to sign up for this 3,000 word evaluation. This particular matchup will be open to registrations from now until the 2nd of June with the matchup emails going out on the 3rd of June. For more information and to register, go to biancamaray.com, look for the beta reader matchup page and please spread the word. The more writers we have signed up, the better the matches will be. Are you struggling with getting a particular scene exactly right? Not sure if you've nailed the pacing or tension or if your opening pages are doing the heavy lifting or are you uncertain as to whether your characters are coming across the way you would like them to? Or maybe you just like some feedback on your writing in general. Join the work in progress workshopping session with me and you'll submit 2,500 words to be critiqued by four other writers while you critique their work at the same time. Now as you prepare 
tip for this session, you'll learn how to give and receive critique, which is honestly the best way of learning the craft of writing. And during the actual session, you'll share these critiques with one another and get to ask each other questions. I'm running this on the 16th of March at 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern Time. You can book for that on my website, biancamaray.com, under the Courses, Retreats and Services tab. And then if you are hoping to join the Shit No One Tells You About Writing book club, but you weren't able to attend the retreat, we've also now made it available that you can sign up for the book club on the website under that same tab for the first book club that's coming up in March. All right, everyone. So it is freezing outside. Snow is falling. I am wearing a faux fur vest, and yet it is summer over here at the Shit No One Tells You About Writing podcast, because I have the queen of summer and the queen of winter, let's just be honest, here with me, Ellen Hildebrand. Ellen Hildebrand is the proud mother of three, a dedicated Peloton writer, an aspiring book influencer, and an enthusiastic at-home cook. Follow her on Instagram, at Ellen Hildebrand, to watch her cringe cooking show. She is also a grateful seven-year breast cancer survivor. Golden Girl is her 27th novel. Welcome. Thank you for having me. This is so much fun. We are so excited to talk to you. I am taking a page out of Ann Patchett's book, and I did not prepare a million questions. I just wrote down topics because according to Ann Patchett, that makes it more interesting and exciting. And if this is not the case, then I am blaming Ann Patchett. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so I think the first thing I wanted to talk to you about is genesis of your ideas, like how how they begin and how they turn into books. Is there a metaphorical drawer where ideas don't get used or does, does do all your ideas become books? Once you have an idea, do you like write it down on a phone app or like a notebook? What's the first step from idea to execution? Because your books always have really strong hooks. So I'd love to know how you start executing that. So it used to be... Until very recently, I would not sign a contract until I had enough ideas. And I'm at the point in my career where it's not like I'm not submitting a novel and then my publisher is accepting it. My most recent contract, they offered me four books, a four book deal, to which I said, no, thank you. I will do two books, to which they said, we'd really like you to do four. But as you know, we can get to this topic later. I'm trying to retire. So I said, no, I'll do two. We we agreed on three. I only had two ideas. And then sort of a vague idea that for my very last book, I wanted to do some kind of thriller. So I agreed to the three book deal. And for my ideas, I I can't really say. A novel, it's a large thing. So you have to have a topic that's really going to be meaty enough. So let's take 28 Summers. So 28 Summers, which was my 2020 novel, I got the idea because I love the movie Same Time Next Year. Or I remember loving it very much like one of my characters who describes seeing the movie when it was like a rainy Sunday. She was in sort of early to mid adolescence, like 13 or 14. Her mother had it on television. And this is back when there used to only be three or four channels. She sat and watched the movie with her mother, which I think is what happened to me. And then later in life, much later, recently, like in the last five or six years, I saw it again. And it wasn't quite as I remembered it. That movie is based on a play. And so it has a very stage acting quality to it. They only have, they have very few sets. There's not a lot of bells and whistles as far as the cinematography is concerned. Mm -hmm. It's very, very simple because it was written for the stage. It was contained, right? I remember that. And I thought to myself, 
they are missing out on so much rich material here. And I am going to write a novel. And initially I had thought it would be called the anniversary and it would be, it would be based on the same time next year about this couple that gets together every year. And then I thought, oh no, we're not going to call it the anniversary. We're going to have it. Then when I like get down to particulars, I'm like, obviously they're going to meet every year in Nantucket. So it's going to be summer. Why don't we call it 28 summers? And I picked that number because that was the number of summers that I had been on Nantucket at that time. And I thought this is so perfect. And I will just sort of start and detail. And then you have to get into your characters and how do they meet and what are their complications? And honestly, I just dive in. I write some notes about the characters and then I just dive into a scene. And so that scene will lead to another scene, will lead to another scene, but dramatizing and writing scenes that have location, that have dialogue. You know, that book starts in New York City. It starts, well, actually it starts in Nantucket, but then chapter one, 1993, it's set in New York and Mallory is young. And the first line is something like, she's moved into this apartment with her best friend, Leland, whom she's beginning to despise more every single day. I remember that. And that line works because immediately we have conflict, right? Immediately someone is not happy. And that is really for the best. And so another tip other than dramatize is you have to have conflict immediately. And, you know, Mallory is sort of, you know, she she says that New York is like a dress that doesn't fit her. Like she can't quite get comfortable. And Leland has adjusted much better to it. And Leland is sort of becoming a city person and has gotten the job that Mallory wants. And so from there, her father calls and says, you're not going to believe this. Your aunt left you this house. And she's like, do things like this happen? I thought they only happened in novels, which, you know, it's like a ha ha. And she goes to Nantucket and starts her life in Nantucket. And then I have to introduce her to Jake. And I had to think about how that was going to happen and who was Jake. And then why are they not together? Why do they decide not to get together? And then the story just sort of unfolded from there. And with each new summer, I had to think of a new complication or twist on their meeting. Our listeners will think that I asked you to say this because one of the things we always talk about is like the need for tension the need for imbalance and the need to have people on the page who are in totally different positions. Like Mallory is feeling like, let's, let's be honest, a little envious of her friend, right. And a little inadequate. So these are so-called ugly emotions that I always say they're actually what makes us human. And that's what makes us connect to the characters because they're incredibly likable characters. Mallory and Jake behave badly in that novel, but they're very likable. How do you do that? Well, that is the trick. And I I really think about it. I've done that with somebody in almost every single novel. It is making somebody who's doing a terrible thing, a likable person because you make them whole. I think a lot of people tend to like make the bad guy or the, the villainess just one dimensional. And one of the things I also do in my novels is I have multiple points of view. Super important for me because that is how you get into other characters' heads and how once you're reading a a chapter from the perspective of someone who's not doing something good, you understand why they're doing it. You feel their motivation. Very few people are evil. And if you're super evil, you're not, you're not showing up in an Ellen Hildebrand book. My people are flawed. They're unfaithful. They steal, (laughs) you know, they run a prostitution ring, like whatever they're doing, but they're not they're not evil and they, you know, they are jealous and they are covetous and they are all those things at times, but they're not evil. But putting a chapter in their perspective will always humanize someone if you're doing it right. When I was at Iowa, I went to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop and my professor, Frank Conroy, who was the director of the program said, you you can't treat your characters like cockroaches. You have to love them. You have to love them 
and instill them with humanity. And in this way, they will be sympathetic to the reader. Now, for our listeners, Iowa, that, that Ellen just referenced, is the most prestigious, the hardest to get in writing program in the world. I have seen you tweet that they were hard years for you. Very hard. I almost, it's not that I almost quit. It's that I was so, so miserable. How come? Well, most of it, half of it, let's say half of it was Iowa itself. So I have been living on Nantucket and our life on Nantucket, even then. So that was only, I was, I went in 96. So I'd only been on Nantucket three or four summers and I was married at that time. Even so our life was so rarefied. We had the gorgeous restaurants. We had the beach picnics. We had the open air Jeeps. You know, we had just like summer, like the quintessential summer life was, it was so, so sweet. And then I get to Iowa and things are more like Olive Garden and pig farms and silos and cornfields. And I, you know, there was no beach, there was no ocean, there was, there were no good, there was one good restaurant, I couldn't afford it. There were none of the sort of things that I had become so comfortable with. And so I, I was not loving Iowa itself. That changed. And by the time I graduated, I really loved Iowa City. I loved that everything was cheap. You know, I loved that there was like a little drugstore down the street where I could go and get lunch for like, I don't know, four bucks. And it was like a sandwich. I mean, it was so, it was so great. I loved the college bars. Like I really learned to love it. But when I first got there, I was like, this is not the life to which I have become accustomed. And then the second thing was the program. So the program is very competitive, as you said. What that means is that it just, it ended up being super cutthroat. I tell this story. (laughs) I got there. I showed up a week late because I could not get my car off Nantucket. You have to put it on a ferry and it's very crowded at the end of August, as you might imagine. Could not get a reservation for love nor money. Finally got off. Was a week late for class. Showed up a week late, like super tan, blonde, like wearing this little sundress and everybody in there is wearing black, you know, like the fedoras. Try to be the artist. Yeah. And then there I am. And they're looking at me like, are you kidding me? And then my very, my very first weekend, I was like, okay, I was lonely. Like my, my husband was back in Nantucket and I'm like, I'm going to have to create a social life here clearly. And I threw a cocktail party and I made a sign said like, come for cocktails. And I taped it up where we used to leave our stories for workshop. And I had like a little drawing cartoon drawing of myself that I made with magic marker. And people were so confused. Like, what is this? Like, do we have to pay? I'm like, no, it's a party at my house. Please come. (laughs) And I made all the hors d'oeuvres from scratch, you know, using my Sarah Chase Nantucket cookbook and everybody came and it was like this huge success. I mean, people really could not believe it. This is like a novel. I established in one of your novels, there'd be like a rivalry and like, it would just have more conflict, but this is like a novel. Like the girl shows up and she has blonde and tan wearing a sundress, total contrast from all the artist types, whatever that even means, but it it would have been so great. I mean, the twist was of course that my writing, so I was very popular socially, but my work was crucified. I mean, nobody liked it least of all my professors. And they were just like, you know, I had Marilyn Robinson and I had Frank Conroy and they just were like, you will never be published. You will never be successful. This is just not like, Ah. (laughs) so then, so that's the twist, right? Like I was so popular socially. I was so unpopular from a writing perspective. Oh, it's only funny now. It's so funny. Listen, I wasn't there. (laughs) Like, what do I know? But if this were an Ellen novel, I would imagine that we'd get the POV from the other characters who would be like, who is this Barbie showing up, like all gorgeous and tan and blonde? And she can't write because how dare you, you know, be able to write. And now it's like, well, please look at my 
28 novels with Hotel Nantucket. Is that yes, right? 28. And I, I, I don't know what they say about me now, but they must have been like, whoa. And part of it is that, you know, I'm a commercial success and, and Iowa really isn't in the business of turning out commercial successes. They turn out literary successes. And I would argue that one of the reasons why I'm a commercial success is because of my literary background, because the books are better. I agree than other commercial beach books. I don't read commercial beach books. I read literary fiction. I read really good. I read this shit that wins the Pulitzer. The, you know, I read Great Circle, which I love. Maggie Shipstead, she also went to Iowa. We love her. We think we love yes. her book here at the podcast. And I just, I read the best work that I can. And then that infiltrates because the only way you can really get better as a writer is to read. And so there's a reason why I'm not reading. I just don't read junk and I don't read things that I don't think are as good as what I'm writing. I read things that I think are better. And that's how you grow really as a writer. So I love that you mentioned 28 Summers because one of the things that I wanted to ask you about, like from a craft perspective, right? In your novels, sometimes 28 Summers is an example. You have these devices that add a collective perspective. So in 28 Summers, it was the one-liners, like what are we talking about in 2019? I remember you mentioned like, Logan, Shiv, Kendall, like the succession characters. I love yes. succession. If we were doing 2022, for sure, Wordle, right? Because right. everybody's talking about Wordle. Right. And in, for example, The Rumor, which is my favorite Ellen novel, we get the point of view of Nantucket. In The yep. Identicals, we get Martha's Vineyard and Nantucket. And for our listeners, I'm sure you've read Ellen's novels, but if you haven't, I actually mean The Island is a point of view. And yeah. that just adds layers. And I think it's really genius because it adds pace to the story. You find a way to very quickly establish how other characters feel about the protagonists. So how did you come up with that? Like, how, how can our listeners do the same thing? Talk to us about that, please. I think I, the first time it appeared was in my novel, Summerland. I believe that was the first time I used, I'm going to call it the Greek chorus voice. So like the chorus voice of Nantucket. And I thought, oh, this has got so much surface energy. I love this. That novel was about four teenagers in a car. The car crashes. They're twins in the car. One twin dies. One twin is paralyzed. The other two kids are fine. And so that voice felt right for that novel because it's, you know how when something in a community like that happens, everybody has an opinion and everybody is sort of collectively shocked and horrified. And so that was where I started using it. And I'm like, this is such a nifty, omniscient tool that I have. And that I use it again in the rumor. I use it in the Hotel Nantucket. I call it the Cobblestone Telegraph. So there are all of these chapters woven throughout called the Cobblestone Telegraph, which is a, a riff on the coconut telegraph that they say happens in the Caribbean. And the Cobblestone Telegraph is just word on the street, right? So, and it is a really fun way to be able to delve into minor characters' heads the way I use it, you know, you can go into anybody's mind and I use it in Golden Girl as well. And I've really become quite fond of it. <laughs> it's like the grapevine, right? Like I heard yeah. it through the grapevine. You know, I asked a client of mine to read one of your novels specifically referencing Greek chorus. And she was like, I'm so confused because I Googled Greek chorus and like it's Shakespeare and Oedipus. And I'm like, yes, but modern day, like let's be commercial about this because your book is very commercial. You can still do it. So I think that, you know, one of the lessons is, all that classic stuff that we learn, super important. I think it's awesome. Yeah. But there's always ways to put fresh modern twists in them, right? And yeah. I mean, I mean, the we voice, the omniscient narrator. I mean, you think about all the things you learned in English lit. Like those things are important for a reason. Like point of view for me is probably, I mean, it's one of the number one things that distinguishes me from everybody else. My novels are told from multiple point of view. I never use the first person. We were really dissuaded from using the first person at Iowa Frank Conroy thought it was almost impossible to get right unless you were J.D. Salinger. And the more I thought about it, 
the more I tended to agree. I will read novels in first person, but I do not prefer them. You can actually get closer and deeper into a character using the third person because it's not the character thinking and saying things. It's the narrator. Do you think it's because it's also the unconscious? Yeah. When it's first person, it's always our consciousness. But when it's the third person, it allows you to tap into the unconscious too. Yeah. You will always get closer in the third person. So I will almost never, ever write in the first person. Yeah. But I mean, the omniscient narrator is the we is so much fun. And actually one of my favorite stories of all time is by Catherine Heine called How to Give the Wrong Impression. And that is told from the second person. And I always love dream of writing, I wouldn't, I couldn't do a whole novel, but of writing sections of a novel in the second person. Will that ever happen? I'm not, I'm not sure. Maybe. Ooh, now I want that. A question I have is about writer's block. In the beginning of the rumor, Madeline has writer's block. Do you ever get writer's block? Do you have tips on how to unblock oneself? I mean, I had a scary situation this past book. So the Hotel Nantucket comes out in June. I started writing it in January or February of last year, right around this time, probably last year. And I had to start, and you'll remember that I signed this contract and I really, I really didn't even want to take this contract. I really wanted to go out with Golden Girl, but I found that I just wasn't quite ready to retire. So I was like, okay, I'll do this book. And I then had a really, really hard time finding the right way to start the Hotel Nantucket. So I started it. I thought this is not working. And that's when you have a total panic. I was up at night. I'm like, this is not working. I went back. I tried a different protagonist. I'm like, this isn't working. I restarted that novel. And I kept thinking to myself, I shouldn't have taken this contract. I jinxed myself. I made a deal with the devil. I should have stuck to my guns. I should never have. And I was so panicked. And then at some point I just kept trying things. And I kept thinking, what do people love about my novels? Like, what do they love about my novels? And, you know, I picked the right, finally landed on the right protagonist, finally added in the, the chorus voice, finally added a ghost in. And so just some different elements that made it super fun. There's a ghost. There's a ghost. Have to read. She's sort of my omniscient narrator at the hotel. And finally, I finally, finally got there. And then at some point, like halfway or three quarters of the way through the summer, I thought this book is actually going to be good. I cannot believe it because I was so sure that I, like I bombed, but it, it ended up being fine. So, but the way I deal with writer's block, that's sort of the macro in the micro is you can do two things. One is, one is I read. So I'll put what I'm working on aside and I'll read. Some writers don't like to read when they're writing. I read all the time. I find it very inspiring. I mean, I'm on book 28, right? So I'm not going to end up copying somebody else's voice. I have my own voice, but reading really good books is very helpful to me when I'm blocked. And the second thing I do is I go back to the beginning of the manuscript. And this is how I got finally, finally got out of my problem with Hotel Nantucket is I went back to the beginning and I read and I went back to the beginning and I kept thinking, who am I missing? Like, who is my main character? Who is going to carry this story? And I finally, I finally found it. From start to finish, how long does it take you to write a first draft? So I started that book, let's say February 1st, and I finished, I turned it in the week before Halloween. So it takes February, March, April, May. But you handed it in. So that's not a first draft. That That's when it was done. It, my first draft yeah. was done. Not, it took nine months. But what about the very first draft? Like the one that you didn't like and went back? Oh, or... I don't. Oh, so no. So I didn't even, so I don't even get that far. So I started gotcha. and like four or five chapters in, I'm like, this is not working. Go back to the beginning, rewrite, go back to the beginning, rewrite. And it's persistence. I mean, like the other thing that's so important to know is that writing is work. It is not magic. Mm-hmm. 
People think it's magic. It's not. It is work. And in the case of the Hotel Nantucket, it was going back to the beginning, going back, going back, rereading, rereading. And I, I had this fantastic section that I'd written something really good that was at the beginning of the book. And I realized this really belongs at the end of the book. This is like this big reveal moment in backstory. And I was going to have it at the beginning. And I'm like, nope, this belongs at the end. So I just saved it and then brought it out when I was ready for it. But a lot of that, you know, is trial and error. It's because I'm experienced and I sort of know, like I eventually figured it out, but it was a lot of work. And and that is the thing is that writing is just a lot of work. Well, listeners, I mean, I hope that you're getting this all down because this is someone with 28 best-selling books under her belt. I'm saying Hotel Nantucket's going to be a best-selling book. I'm very confident. Well, let's hope so. <laughs> I have no doubt. So, and she still felt imposter syndrome, as you could see, right? Like she was still going, oh my gosh, I did a deal with the devil. And and Ellen also still felt like, you know, uh, like she had to really, really work really hard. It's not, it's never magic, right? It's always butt in chair and then always right, butt discipline. Always button chair. Always. It is not. I was not the most talented person at Iowa by a long shot. I was not the least talented. I don't believe that. Would, that, 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 that is where believe. we disagree. I'm sorry. No, I'm sorry. I, I could finish. And that, I think ultimately, like when you look at what separates me from everybody else, you're closer. Part of it, part of it is that my, my topic, my, my subject matter was a little bit more commercial, a little bit more easy to sell. But part of it was just that I always turned in finished stories and I finished books and I'm not flighty. And, you know, I exercise three hours a day. Like I, I have all these things that set up the discipline of writing. Writing is hard. I recently asked a question on Twitter, which is, you know, what's something about your personality or your background or a habit that is useful in your writing life? And everyone who answered, I finish things, you know, I'm disciplined. These are all wonderful skills. Every single answer is valid, but yeah. So one thing I wanted to talk to you about was the Literati Book Club. You know, when I first saw you there, I was delighted, but I also wasn't surprised at all because way before Literati, you were already sharing book recommendations online. I was always like eyeing your Instagram to see one of my favorite all-time novels was actually your recommendation. It's called White Fur. Yes. um, By Jardine Laver. So, and you recommended it. And I was like, oh my gosh, this novel is amazing. So I want to know, what are the plans of the book club? This retiring nonsense that you keep speaking of and that I've tried not to address. You can't do this to us. I'm so sorry, but you're not allowed. But if you do, at least, will we at least still have you for a book club and stuff like that? Yes. So literati, I really want to become a book influencer. And I become like you're not already. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, I want to be bigger. Like I want to kind of, the amazing thing that's happened with reading. I mean, there's so many things that have happened with reading. When I started, when I was at Iowa, like it was Oprah and only Oprah, but Oprah, think about what Oprah did. Oprah really brought modern day book clubs to life. Mm-hmm. And I give her just so much credit for what she has done for American reading yeah. and the American book industry. And I can still remember the first pick and her second pick, like, and I read them all. And I was like, oh my gosh, these books are so good. And then Reese Witherspoon came in and the morning shows came in. And so now, you know, there are different venues for having book picks, but none of them are by a writer. So I want eventually to have a national book club that is run by a writer. That writer can be me, in my case, will be me. And literati in the short term, because they do all the work for me, (laughs) literati was the perfect short term and I may be there several years, but it's, it's, I, I do dream of something of my own that's bigger. I don't need to make any money off it. I just want to be able to influence what people are reading and to really promote books that other people are missing 
And so anyway, one of the great things about Literati, my, my book club is called The Beach and Beyond. I basically picked The Beyond because as I told you, I don't read a lot of beach books. And I think my readership initially was a little confused or stymied because they were hoping for beach books. And now that we've been at it seven months, they realize that they're going to get really well-written really compelling stories. I like driving narratives, but I mean, I've picked, like I picked Lily King's Euphoria, which is mm-hmm. just such an incredible book. We've but had our very, podcast. We are huge Lily King fans. It's very difficult to get into because it's, and I explained that to them before they started reading. I said, this is set in Papua New Guinea. It's going to be very foreign to you. The language is not going to be what you're used to. And then eventually you're going to get it. It's going to click. You're going to fall in love with this world. And it's all going to start to make sense. And I thank God I said that to them because everyone's like, I was going to put this down after three pages. And I've um, never read Euphoria. I've read Writers and Lovers. Yeah. And Five Tuesdays in Winter. So now I have to pick that up. Oh my God. Euphoria is her master. As far as I'm concerned, it's just her masterwork. I mean, it's incredible. Can I recommend you a book? Is that allowed? Yes, I want you to. Wahala by Nikki May. Okay. I have it it. in my pile, actually. Okay. You will love it. You will love it. I started reading it. And Ellen, this is so funny because- you know, we've never met. This is our first time talking. And yet because of how open and warm and just how much you share about your love of books on social media, I have been successfully able to predict so many of the books that you end up loving. So I know hit me up and tell me if you don't, because I still want to know, but I'm like so confident that you will. It's really good. Okay. Can you give me the premise? Cause I have it in my, I had it in my pot. I looked at it the other day. I'm like, what is this? So I'm still like about a third of the way in, but a hundred percent, I know the premise. And you have these three friends. It's set in London, London, England. You have three friends. They're all mixed race. They bonded over this fact. Some of them, um, two of them are like childhood friends. And one of them came into the friend group in college. And a fourth friend disrupts the group. And she has deadly intentions. She is someone, this is like the opening scene is one of the protagonists walking in and she's like, who's this person sitting at the lunch table with my best friend? She has side boob and it's lunchtime. She's this goddess, like super hot. All the men keep staring at her. Like restaurant is essentially like gravitating towards her. And she's talking to my best friend. And then she finds out that they knew each other from childhood. But but this friend has never mentioned her. You'll mention your childhood best friend. There's drama in that background, right? And the very, very opening scene, actually, because this isn't the very opening scene, the very, very opening scene is told from a point of view that we don't know who that person is. It's one of the women, we assume. Okay. And I still don't know because I'm still like a third in. On your recommendation, I will read it. What what are you reading now? What should what should we read? Well, the book I have to rave about, which you may have seen on my Instagram, is called Red Island House by Andrea Lee. Let me just give me 30 seconds on this. This book was so good. Set in Madagascar, it's about a Black American woman who she gets married to an Italian businessman, white guy. And as like a wedding present or whatever, right as soon as they get married, he takes her down. He has built this massive villa on the beach on an island off the coast of Madagascar. And she can tell right away the house is cursed. She has this property manager named Christos, who's this Greek dude. She hates him. She needs to get rid of him. And so she goes with the head of housekeeping into the village to find the guy that makes the magic happen. But that makes it sound like it's like a magical realism book, which it's not. Although they do actually, not to ruin the surprise, they do end up very amusingly getting rid of the house manager. Then it becomes just like, it's almost like short stories that are connected, but they're so connected that it really is a novel, but it tells all these different stories about her life in the house in Madagascar and recurring characters come in and you sort of hear the story of her marriage 
And Madagascar is so vividly, we, you use the word specificity, the specificity of this book and the gorgeous writing. It is not something that you breeze through. This was a book where every sentence is so rich that you just have to slow down and read and just take it in and absorb it. She is so talented. And I was so in awe. And about two thirds of the way through, I'm like, I never want this book to end. This book is absolutely gorgeous. And Red Island House, Island Andrea Lee. So I posted about that. Then when I finished that, I read I Am, I Am, I Am by Maggie O'Farrell. Maggie O'Farrell, writer's writer. Just, I read, I don't know if you've read Hamnet. Hamnet was my favorite book of 2020. I'm so it, glad I read Hamnet because I didn't want to because of the whole pandemic thing. Right. But it, it, it didn't bother me at all. Like it was great. I was transported. Oh my gosh, it was so good. And I am, I am, I am is her memoir. And the memoir is about the 17 times that she almost died. She's not that old. I would say she, she's probably younger than I am. I'm 52. She's probably in her late forties. She's almost died 17 times. And each one of the 17 times has a chapter. What a great Absolutely, hook. Like her gorgeous writing. I mean, just poignant and, and suspenseful. And like, there were some chapters, of course, you think she's, gonna, you know, she doesn't die because you're reading her memoir, but you're like, oh my God, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? And really highly, highly recommended. And then right now today, I've started rereading Celeste Ng's Everything I Never Told You, which is my April pick. I don't even know if anybody knows this. It's my April pick for literati is Everything I Never Told You by Celesting. I'm rereading it. I read it I 10 years ago. I don't know. I don't know how long ago I read it, but I read it a long time ago and remembered it, thought it was perfect for literati, but I, I like to reread them so that when I'm discussing them with people on the app, I can remember what I'm talking about. I love that so much. So for my very last question, I wanted to ask you, kind of touching on the retiring nonsense and a theory I had. I love theories. So my theory is that you will not retire because your daughter started reading your books. I heard about that. Shelby, I believe yeah. is her name. Yeah. And in summer of 69, there's a great scene where Jesse is chatting with her dad and she realizes part of what becoming a fully formed person or a real person, I forget the words, is, is happening to her in that moment. And then she has, she calls it a radical thought, I think. And then she realizes as a second radical thought that she has always been a fully formed real person in her dad's eyes that she already is. And, you know, I think that the inverse is also true for children. And that sometimes means adult children. Your parents are your parents, right? Obviously your children know that you are a best-selling successful author, but I'm sure that to them, you are mom first and oh, foremost, yes. because that's, that's, you know, that's what, what moms do. And I wonder if the, if that scene with Jesse isn't happening with Shelby or maybe has happened already where she's like, oh my gosh, my mom's kind of a badass too. I mean, <laughs> The children are kind to me. They indulge me. They patronize <laughs> me. They, I don't, you know, I am very, very much their mother first and foremost. And then a distant, distant, distant second. Like when other people mention it and they like that I'm verified on Instagram, that gives them the street cred. That is all they care about. They don't care really that, you know, Shelby has read the book. She's excited to read the hotel Nantucket. She loved 28 summers and golden girl. I am going to retire very thoughtfully and intentionally. And what I mean by that is there will not be a new Nantucket book every summer. Somebody asked me last week, what are you going to do when you retire? And my answer was, I'm going to write novels, but I'm going to do it on my own timetable. And I may try something different. Like I do feel as like a beach novelist, there are certain topics that are too gritty or too, too sad or 
too dirty or messy for me to get into. And I'm like, that really doesn't belong in a beach book. And so I may try and write a novel that incorporates elements that are sort of have been outside my purview until now, but I'm going to do it on my own time. And so I am very thoughtfully retiring with the 2024 book. That will be the last of this business model. And anything that comes after that will be something else. And I am now loving this retiring thing because we'll get more novels. Yeah. And they will be, you're you know, saying, I, you're, you're hearing the we, right? Because I have to yeah. read the, whatever you write. Yeah. Like. And then they will be, you know, they, they might be the same. See, see, I don't know. They might be the same, but, or they might, they might be different. I don't know. I want to give myself the freedom. And I also want to give myself the time to just take a beat because right now there are no beats right now. My life is boom, 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 boom. And, you know, onto the next and onto the next and onto the next. So I do have, I will tell you this. I do have a book coming out in the, in October. And also called Summer Days Again, which is a compilation of all of my e-shorts, my extra chapters, my bonus content. That's all coming together in one volume. I am writing presently a long short story slash novella called Summer of 89, which follows Summer of 69, Summer of 79. And I'm writing Summer of 89, which is told from multiple points of view, but focuses on the twins that were born in 1969. They're having their 20th birthday. They're both in lots of trouble and everybody's freaking out. And that will be new. So that will be a new novella. And then there is an extra chapter to Golden Girl that no one has read. And there is an extra chapter to The Perfect Couple that no one has read. My mom is going to freak when I tell her because Golden Girl is her favorite. I also love very much Golden Girl, but it's my mom's favorite. And the greatest thing for, for, for your perspective and your reader's perspective is that the chapter for Golden Girl is called The Workshop. And it's about, maybe goes to Breadloaf in Vermont for a summer writer's workshop. And she has this crazy time. And so that short story is her going to this writer's workshop. It is hilarious. But also it has all of the workshop stuff that the people that are listening to this podcast will more than understand. I it is wait. so fun. It is, you know, she turns on this story. I mean, it is, it is hilarious and you guys will really appreciate it. So that is called summer days again, and it comes out October 4th. Excellent. We have many, many books to look forward to. The thing that I most love about your summer book, so this is super selfish, is that my birthday is on June 20th. And so usually your novels are always like 19, sometimes yep. 21st. And yep. so I call them my birthday present. Everybody yes. already knows. <laughs> Fantastic. And thank you so much for having me on. This has been so much fun. And that's it for today's episode. I hope you'll join us for next week's show. In the meantime, keep at it. Remember, it just takes one yes. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. 
Don't forget there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there. Here's the thing. Ever wonder why aspiring authors spend so much time trying to crack the code about how to get published? That's because no one who is in the daily grind like me has put all the pieces together in one place. It's Carly Waters here, and as your senior literary agent on the podcast with 15 years of experience in publishing, selling books, and teaching the business of publishing, I'm here to give you the clarity that will turn this hobby into a career. Inside my course, The Author's Publishing Playbook, we have monthly live Q&A sessions to cover your specific issues, but for the rest, there are over 40 video lessons that equal 10 hours of learning with professionally edited transcripts. The course will solve all your writerly problems, except write your book for you. That's on you. My course is a masterclass designed to teach writers how to prepare, pitch, publish, and promote their book in today's competitive publishing landscape. It's for career-driven writers, aspiring and published, who want to understand how to succeed in the business of books. There are over 20 worksheets, downloads, and plug-and-play templates for editing, querying, and marketing. You get lifetime access for the entire six-module course as soon as you purchase. As new content gets added, you have access to that as well. Don't forget, there's a mobile app on top of computer access you can learn on the go. Get started today to gain the career you've only dreamed about. And you guys get a discount. So at checkout, carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. That's carlywaters.com slash course, use code POD15. That's code POD15 when you check out for 15% off. See you inside the course. Hi, everyone. This is Cece. If you're a fan of books with hooks, then you've probably heard me use the term interiority. I often catch myself saying things like, these pages need more interiority, or the interiority here needs work. And that's because interiority is a super important element of storytelling. It's what makes books unique. But as it turns out, a lot of you have questions about what exactly is interiority and how to properly weave it into stories, which is why I'm teaching my popular writing interiority class in a new two-day format. We'll meet on Thursday, June 6 at 8 p.m. via Zoom to cover all things interiority, including the difference between interiority and emotions, how interiority is 
different from telling, how to leverage interiority into plot points, how to strike a balance between interiority and mystery, and more. And then we'll meet again for a live cozy Q&A session on Monday, June 10th, also at 8 p.m. via Zoom, in which you'll have the opportunity to turn your camera on if you choose. If you're interested, check out the link in my bio on Instagram, and I hope to see you there.